Welcome to Have You Heard, the AABP podcast. My name is Dr. Fred Gingrich. I'm the executive director of AABP. And we have a returning guest today who's been on a, several of our podcasts due to his leadership with AABP. He's our current past president, Dr. Calvin Booker. Calvin, go ahead and introduce yourself again to our listeners, please. Uh, thanks, Fred. Um, yes, I'm a veterinarian uh, based in uh, Okotoks, Alberta, Canada, which is just south of Calgary. I graduated from the Western College of Veterinary Medicine back in 1989. Um, I did an internship at Cornell, and then I went right back into graduate school and got my master's degree in epidemiology. And since that time, I've been um, at Feedlot Health Management Services here. Uh, I'm a veterinarian and an animal health and production consultant uh, in the feedlot. Uh, sector of the beef industry, um, and we provide services to clients uh, across Canada, U.S., Mexico, and a few other locations throughout the world. Well, pretty uh, expansive practice, really neat practice up there in Calgary. Uh, I've enjoyed visiting there. Uh, one of the one of the perks of my jobs is I get to see the entire entirety of the industry versus when I was in uh, primarily dairy practice here in Ashland, Ohio. And I think one of the things that uh, I've learned since becoming executive director of AABP is some of the terminology that, uh, you know, is, is very commonly used within our own little sectors of the industry, uh, but might be unfamiliar to others. And so one of those terms is bullers or buller syndrome. And uh, I was reading an article in Feedlot Magazine that Calvin was, a, was a, you know, a, a contributor to. And uh, I thought, boy, this might be a really cool topic for a podcast to try to, you know, explain to our listeners who are not you know, involved in the feedlot industry uh, to the level that all of you are. Um, and so let's just start out and just uh, what's Buller syndrome? Yeah, so the, uh, the Buller syndrome or Buller steer syndrome or sometimes called riders, uh, kind of some of the colloquial terms we would hear in the feedlot. Um, is an animal that uh, is excessively ridden by its pen mates um, and consequently needs to be removed from the pen to uh, prevent uh, serious uh, injury, uh, etc. It uh, obviously primarily occurs in pens of male animals. Um, so this is different from what we would see, you know, with heifers, uh, that, that it would have normal cycling activity and riding. This is this is uh, the, sort of the extreme version of that, I guess, if you if you wanted to look at it that way. Yeah, and is there a, so is there a, I guess we could call them bully syndrome, right? Because they're bullying and picking on uh, one animal in the pen. Is there is there a particular time in the feeding period where this is more commonly seen, or there's an increased risk for this? Yeah, good question, Fred. You know, uh, on two fronts. I mean, one, when we talk about the bullers, we're actually talking about the animal that actually gets excessively ridden as opposed to the, the instigators in the process. Um, so that's so that's one um, distinction, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, when we look at it in pen, pens of male animals, um, all things being equal, we would see the most uh, of this riding behavior that occurs in the first uh, one to three weeks on feed. And it really seems to be as animals are sort of establishing their pecking order or their social hierarchy. Um, and we observe that in, um, in the full range of cattle that come in. We might have large groups of cattle that have begin together uh, for months before they come into the feedlot. And we see a little bit of that riding behavior, not very much. We may see auction market put together groups of animals where 
probably no two animals have seen each other before, and we see more riding behavior generally in those types of populations. Okay. Okay. Kind of like in the dairy industry, when we move animals from pen to pen, uh, it takes a while to develop that uh, social hierarchy, which is why we recommend, of course, uh, you know, in the in the dry period, not to move animals within three weeks of calving, so they so we're not moving them during that uh, uh, period of uh, social unrest, we'll call it. Um, so what are some of the, what are some of the consequences of Buller syndrome? You know, it can affect animal health, welfare, is that correct? Uh, what are some of those implications, uh, that we see with this syndrome? Yeah, so probably two or three main ones we would think of. So certainly in the animal gets excessively ridden, um, looking at, uh, injuries or consequences of that riding. So, um, so it could be injuries from, you know, getting ridden down or something serious like that. Um, in severe cases that, that could lead directly to death. Um, obviously then bruising and cellulitis and things that might happen as a consequence of that excessive riding. Those are all, those are all things that could happen in the animal that gets excessively ridden. We also uh, tend to see an increased, um, occurrence of injuries in, in the animals that are actually doing the riding because, you know, they're, they, they could get, um, you know, pen conditions might be slippery or they might get uh, they might oftentimes many animals involved. So there's those kinds of injuries. And then the third thing is probably a bigger economic implication is that if all the animals in the pen are stirred up and are um, spending a lot of their energy uh, doing extracurricular activities associated with the riding behavior, that really is not conducive to um, good game conversion and those types of things. And so when this happens, it's essentially, um, I've heard it described as a, a cloud of dust where essentially they're just really, they pick one animal and everybody teams up and, and rides them and, and, and injury is, is, you know, occurs a lot of times if you don't address it. Yeah, that's correct. That's, that's, if you watch it happen, that's, that's kind of how it transpires and, and uh, you get more than one animal involved in the riding behavior and it kind of feeds on itself to some extent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> almost like what happens in chickens, right? I mean, we see that in, in our big poultry barns here, you know, where, where that happens uh, uh, as well. And how, how, how common is this? I mean, is this something that's relatively, that is not seen infrequently? Uh, it really depends on the on the population and and sort of the some of the other other characteristics that sort of fit together. You know, we um, it's it's more common when we have intact males in the population than if all the animals are castrated. Um, it's more common in animals that are um, bigger and older when they first arrive at the feedlot than in animals that are that are younger when they first arrive at the feedlot. Um, it would be. Uh, we we probably see more of it in uh, larger size pens than we do in in smaller size groups in terms of numbers absolute numbers of animals. You know, there's been um, we've done lots of work in sort of small research pens where we've got ten or twenty animals per pen, and riding behavior essentially doesn't occur in the male population in those small numbers. And I think that's probably because every animal can remember where it fits in the social hierarchy of things. Um, when we get into pens of 100 or 200 or 500 animals, that's when we uh, can start to see more riding activity. And then anything we do uh, purposefully or unintentionally that sort of disrupts that social hierarchy in the pen uh, or agitates or irritates the animals um, 
increases the risk that you might get some uh, riding behavior. There's some really a couple of really good papers that were uh, published by Lee Taylor um, back in 1997. Uh, some of the, uh, the describing the Buller Steer syndrome. There's some really good epidemiologic work in there that helps give people an idea of the frequency of how it occurs and when it occurs and what some of those consequences are. I'd encourage our readers to look those up if they were looking for more specific information. Yeah, and we'll link those papers in our podcast notes so readers can easily or so listeners can easily find them. So you said um, it, it, you know, when we talk about like the underlying foundations of Buller syndrome, there's a difference between dominance behavior and reproductive behavior. Can you get into that a little bit more? Yeah, so the dominance behavior is, um, I think, pretty easy for most of us to understand. In male animals, riding is one of the one of the expressions of dominance in cattle. So, so that happens as one thing. But probably the thing that then compounds that is that males are sort of hardwired on the visual cue of riding behavior that sort of happens from a reproductive function when a female's in estrus and in standing heat and there's other animals that are riding it that's actually the visual clue for uh intact male to actually go figure out what's going on in that situation <laughs> and uh that happens in our pens of of uh, a feedlot cattle as well. Once that starts, other animals that are more aggressive animals for whatever reason, they see that visual cue and they're attracted to that situation as well. So you kind of got both things feeding off each other. Yeah. Another reason to uh, encourage our clients for early castration. Uh, This would be another reason for that to have the animals castrated well ahead of the time before they would arrive at the yard, correct? Yes, that would be one one more reason to yes. uh, advocate for early castration. Yeah, yeah. And we need to continue to work on that in our industry. So, you know, I know veterinarians uh, work with that, and there's certainly challenges associated with that in our cow-calf uh, industry. But we always have room for improvement there to try to get uh, all animals castrated, uh, you know, before they leave the ranch. I think that would be a good goal for all of us to have. You know, you talked a little – so we've talked about intact males. You talked about – pen size effect. And you mentioned a little bit about, you know, it's, it's triggers for this. And you mentioned a little bit about, you know, uh, uh, disruption. So, you know, we, we try to on every operation, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's cow, calf, dairy, or, or, or feedlots, we try to not interrupt their day. So what are some of the things that could cause that and, and, and maybe increase the risk of this syndrome? Yeah. So uh, there's a couple things that uh, probably will pop to most listeners' minds. So, so one is the feeding schedule. Um, in feedlots, we we tend to have a fairly set feeding schedule, um, and so we're keeping feed in front of the animals, and we're doing that at regular intervals. Well, sometimes things happen in production, and we get behind for one thing, one reason or another. Some could be weather issues, could be breakdowns, could be whatever. But now, if we end up with a population that's hungry and then starts to get a little bit agitated, that then could be one of the triggers that that uh, that spars some of the expression of dominance as animals are, you know, maybe pushing towards the bunk or, or those types of things. Another one could be handling. Um, we handle the animals routinely uh, uh, during the feeding period, maybe for revaccination or uh, re-implant or maybe a sorting event or something. Um, 
that in 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 a in a big feedlot that could actually take a half a day to do right if we think how far the pen might be from the handling facility we think how many animals are in the pen that need to go through the handling facility by the time we get them all done and get them all back in the pen that could disrupt the animals for like half a day and so again some of those things then that could trigger um you know some of the social hierarchy things being reset um that could lead to riding behavior and one that i mentioned in there as well would be you know potentially the the role that implants might play um most of the feedlots that uh in in north america would use would that would be using some sort of conventional production which in, would include the use of growth implants um and while growth implants themselves don't cause riding behavior they can exacerbate it um and it depends on the the, the the dose type frequency duration of the different types of implants used but we've got some pretty good data that shows that um you know more is not better and uh if we are um giving more potent implants especially if we're giving them more frequently so that there's overlap between the implants that just sort of raises the whole um, that just sort of raises the whole level of uh, expression of dominance within the male population, and we get more riding behavior. Hmm. Another reason to work with your veterinarian to make sure that your implant schedule is is appropriate, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Like all the animal husbandry things, um, trying to do the right things at the right time, um, and again, work with your veterinarian or your nutritional consultant to uh, try and put together the optimal programs for those. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about uh, weather, environmental impacts. You know, I know that, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, mud and, and, and hot weather, you know, our cattle that are housed in any environment, you know, uh, are going to experience the, the changes in weather. And that's, of course, uh, regional. You know, there's a difference between, you know, the high plains and where you are up uh, uh, north of the border. So what, what, how can weather influence this? Is it mostly just a disruption or a stress event? What, what, what uh, uh, is that caused by? Yeah. So when we see weather things, it's maybe, um, it's maybe more as things return to normal, if that's the, if that's the way to look at it. So when we look at when it's extremely hot, we don't see much riding behavior. And when we look and it's extremely cold, uh, we don't see much riding behavior. And if we're in the middle of a storm, a winter storm or a summer storm, there's not much riding behavior. But when it cools off after being hot, when it warms up after being extremely cold, when we get a, a period of more normalcy after a storm, now is the, uh, the sort of the chance where maybe there's a bunch of pent up frustration and energy. Maybe it's, uh, maybe there's other irritation that's uh, happening, but that's when we would tend to see uh, influences of weather contributing to the occurrence of riding. Okay. okay. That makes sense. So we talked about, you know, the risk to the animal um, and, and some of the triggers for this, but what about the financial costs? Is there any, you know, data out there or just in your experience uh, as a feedlot veterinarian as far as, you know, the costs associated with this syndrome and, and what causes those losses? Yeah, so if we think about, we can probably put it into two or three buckets. If we think about the animal that gets excessively ridden, so then there's 
costs of detecting that animal and moving them out of the pen and taking them to a hospital facility, uh, one, to diagnose if they have underlying disease and, and potentially treat that, to treat complications that may have occurred from the riding behavior, to house them separately for some period of time um, while they get a chance to convalesce and recover. So there's those, those costs and different feedlots charge different amounts or account for those in different ways. Um, then the, then the, this, the second bucket would be the fallout from that. I mean, there's some animals that die. There's some animals that uh, don't recover and can't go back to a normal production pen and we have to rail for salvage slaughter. So there's reduced realized value out of those animals one way or the other. And then the third bucket is probably sort of the larger impacts on average daily gain and feed conversion on the balance of the pen because we're spending a lot of energy on things that aren't conducive to growth and feed efficiency. Um, and, and that really depends on what that, what that extent is. Um, you know, today's cost where <laughs> corn prices are six something a bushel um, and you look at a 1% change in feed conversion, that, ha that has a big economic impact on a per head basis. Um, obviously, the more pounds you're putting on the animal, the bigger the impact. But um, those those costs add up in a hurry and are probably far greater than what, what people have estimated. Yeah, because we're dealing with big numbers on on a lot of our feed yards and, and dairies, of course. And so those small changes on an individual animal basis, when we apply them to the entire population – is big. It's huge dollars, uh, which which I'm sure many of our uh, veterinary listeners are well aware of, because since they since they work with these clients. So when when that when the, when you remove that uh, buller animal from the pen, does it tend to then kind of calm down in that pen? Is that typically what happens? Uh, generally. <laughs> Uh, generally, that's what happens. If we're able to remove the the one and sometimes two animals because it, it just sort of happens that way out of the pen, um, that normally kind of helps settle things down. But if the underlying factors that are causing the population to be uh, agitated or trying to express dominance, if those things are still at play, there may still be some more animals that uh, that end up um, um, being excessively ridden. And one of the things that's really interesting, and if you look at the work by Lee Taylor, um, it's actually the bigger animals in the pen that are more likely to get ridden as opposed to the smaller ones. And that's a, that's a little counter to what we probably think about, but it's probably because those animals are higher up in the social hierarchy. And um, if you're really low on the social hierarchy, nobody really cares. Um, but if you're up near the top, that's where the that's where those that are higher on the social hierarchy are trying to adjust their position, and everybody's trying to move to the top. So, so it's actually a little bit counterintuitive, um, but that's probably why we can sort of continue to see that, uh, that those types of things happen. And treatment. So you said, you know, the, the main treatment is get the animal out of the pen, right? Are there associated things? Uh, just pretty much just, uh, um, you know, treating the, the symptoms, uh, uh, cellulitis, et cetera, that you talked about, identifying underlying items. What, what, what does treatment typically involve? Well, there's been lots of crazy things probably tried over the over, <laughs> over time as we as as for those of us who've been in, involved in the industry. But really, supportive care for the animal and treatment of underlying disease those are the two biggest things. And putting the animal in an environment where it can convalesce and recover those are those are the, those are the biggest things. 
Um, some of the other weird and wonderful things that have been tried, uh, none of those have really pr- proven out to be of any use. Yeah, yeah. Like if there's a lot of different treatments, probably none of them work too good. It's kind of our rule of thumb in veterinary medicine sometimes. But then prevention, you mentioned several things, but maybe what are some of your top, you know, items that you would just maybe review to go over with uh, uh, owners and pen writers as far as how to prevent this? Yeah, so, um, you know, thinking about when riding behavior occurs and, and when we and when we look at that and the the first few weeks on feed are in mixed populations um, of animals is the highest risk period. I think trying to do everything we can to sort of mitigate making the situation worse. So making sure that we get them into a regular schedule as soon as possible, um, controlling other diseases because that's just one less thing that needs to uh, uh, to contribute to it. Um, thinking about what our implant programs might be. Maybe not giving really aggressive implant programs early in the feeding period is a more appropriate strategy because we're not compounding that implant effect on top of the other things that are occurring early in the feeding period. Um, obviously, uh, you know, proper animal husbandry relative to pen conditions, stocking densities, uh, feeding schedules, all of those, all of those types of things. And then as we work our way through the feeding period, thinking about the other things that we know could exacerbate um, the, the, uh, the occurrence of riders and trying to minimize those or not do multiple ones at the same time. I think those are the big things. And then as part of proper animal husbandry, I mean, good, um, sick animal detection and, uh, and, and treatment. If we're going to have tens of animals fed in confinement, we are going to have some animals that get excessively ridden. And the most important part is to, uh, early identification, removal of those animals so that, um, we have the best outcome for that animal and we sort of try and prevent it from becoming a bigger problem in the pen. Well, that's great information, Calvin. I really appreciate you taking part in our podcast today. Um, and, you know, I would really encourage our members to learn about other aspects of uh, the cattle industry, you know, uh, uh, primarily being involved in the dairy industry. I've really enjoyed learning more about the feedlot industry uh, and about the uh, cow-calf industry that's outside of, you know, the Midwest, which is where I'm most familiar with. So, you know, I think that's one of the great things about AABP is that we can network and you can uh, sit down at our conference. Hopefully you'll come to Salt Lake City and you can meet members that are in other aspects. It's okay if you're a dairy veterinarian to sit in on a beef session and uh, listen to a beef research summary. That, that stuff is really interesting. It helps educate us and advocate uh, for our industry. Uh, and I just think this is one of those topics that probably a lot of dairy veterinarians uh, are unfamiliar with, the Buller syndrome. Like Calvin said, this is a, another opportunity for veterinarians to work with their clients to try to minimize the stress on the animals that we're taking care of. I think one of my favorite quotes uh, is productivity is the absence of stress, which I think is pretty uniform across the entire uh, animal health industry, not just cattle. Right. And, uh, and again, Calvin, you know, suggested that the reproductive 
um, aspects of Buller syndrome is just another reason why veterinarians should work with their clients to make sure that the that the uh, bull calves are castrated at an early age. Uh, that also helps to uh, decrease the pain associated with the procedure, improve recovery re- weight, and help them transition to the finishing phase uh, easier. So, Calvin, really want to Thank you for participating in yet another podcast and, uh, and for your time today explaining Buller Syndrome to our listeners. Thank you. 